Advent, as it's been called through, throughout church history. Um, we celebrate this morning the, 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 the week of, of joy. Let me just review where we, we've sort of been. We started with preparation. Uh, John the Baptist was in the, in the wilderness preparing the way for the, uh, for the Lord. Uh, last week we talked about how even in the midst of um, great chaos, God is always at work preparing to bring about his plan. So we, we Ruth and how even in the period of, of the judges that, that God had a plan to rescue his people and that story was a part of the bigger story. And so this week uh, we're going to continue on to, uh, to the larger to a larger part of the story. And so we're going to go from the Old Testament to the, to the New Testament. Uh, and there'll be some, uh, some overlap here. But I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. Uh, it says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of... of uh, I'm sorry... And Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijab. And Abijab the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jerome, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, and at, uh, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shetiel, uh, Shetiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Echelim, Elikaham, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born to, who is called the Christ. Oh man, it is good to be a pastor in Godwin Heights or Godfrey Lee, right? Because those words don't make me uncomfortable. That's like reading the role at, at, uh, at Godwin Heights. That's like a description of my football team. We had three J. Cohemes. Um, <laughs> uh, people don't really, uh, people don't typically like uh, genealogies, right? Uh, I actually enjoy the concept of genealogies. Every year around Christmas when I have some time off, I'll work on the family genealogy, but that's different. People don't typically, when they read scripture, enjoy the genealogies. If you're honest, most of you know that you skip over the genealogies when you're reading. So in January 1, when we begin uh, a Bible reading, uh, and everyone's like, we're going to read through the Bible in, in a year. Like some of you make it through in a year, but if we were honest, you didn't read those genealogies and you need to go back. You know, it's an incomplete. Because people don't typically read genealogies because we go, why? Why is that there? Um, and so the answer of why it's there is a question we want to answer this morning and talk about. This genealogy happens to be very, very interesting to me. It happens to fit very, very well with, with our themes of joy. It's an, it's an Advent passage. Um, it's very interesting, but it's not just an 
in, in all the names, but it is in some of the names, and I think it, it makes an excellent point for us this morning. And so we're going to focus on something very specific in this genealogy. I have, um, I have preached from this passage before. Sometimes I refer to this as the grandmothers of Christmas uh, a sermon. If you are a reader in, in urban ministry, if you've read the book, A Theology as Big as the City. I referenced that last week by Ray Bakke. He's the one who first pointed this out to me, but as I, as I study, I go, that's pretty awesome. So we're going to focus in this genealogy, uh, not on everyone uh, who is here, but we are going to focus on a few of the people who are here, predominantly the four women. It's unusual for women to appear in a, in a genealogy. Uh, in fact, it's... Um, uh, it's very unusual, but they show up here amongst all these men. And so there becomes a question of why are they there and what are we, what are we being told? Why does that happen? And that's the question we'll answer this morning. But I want to start by just sort of, um, sort of looking at them. In, in verse 3, we encounter Tamar. Tamar is a woman. Uh, Tamar is encountered in the, in the book of, of Genesis. Uh, Tamar marries one husband, and that husband dies. So she marries his brother, and that brother dies. And then she's supposed to marry a, a, a third brother, and uh, they, the, the father of, of that brother runs off and breaks Levitical law. He's like, no, you can't marry, uh, you can't marry my, my son because he's afraid that Tamar's a black widow, so to speak. He's like... Uh, my sons keep marrying her, and they end up dead. You are not marrying my other son. And so uh, Tamar hatches a, a plan, uh, she, uh, a devious little plan, wherein she disguises herself, uh, and she prostitutes herself back to her former father-in-law. And her former father-in-law, not recognizing her, her goes, and when she asks for payment, he doesn't have, have payment. So he says, well, leave your, leave your credit card. In this case, it was his, his signature ring, his identifying ring. And so he leaves the ring with her, and it comes about at the time that they, that they discover that, that Tamar is unmarried and, and pregnant. And so this, this, is a, this is a crime worthy of death. And they're about to get her, and she says, oh, but look what I have, the ring of the father, and the ring of the, the one who impregnated me, and it's scandal. It's crazy. We don't need to go deep into that, except for to say that it was some unusual stuff. It was, it was scandal. Now, if you do your genealogy, your family tree, you're usually looking for the most interesting people in your family tree. But most of us, when we do our family tree, do not, like, people have this, these discussions about family trees. Like, in my wife's family tree, uh, we can actually go to Ellis Island in New York City and see where they came from, the Netherlands. You can read about them in the in the in the thing there um i'm a drake so everyone who's a drake lies about having sir francis drake uh as a direct descendant he had no offspring so nobody's a direct descendant of sir francis drake but you might hear a drake lie about that um you you kind of come up with the people that that and you want like exciting people you get into the discussion well i'm related to a king in the past i'm related to the queen of France. I was related, uh, my father-in-law told my children a story, uh, and this maybe gets closer to where we are here, uh, a story where he traced the genealogy and he believes they were related to Vikings. Um, 
Vikings being pillagers, that is closer to what we're talking about here. Because it's interesting that in most genealogies, we look for like the most interesting uh, uh, people, but we don't usually look for people like Tamar. Like I've never encountered a person who says, I did my genealogy. You'll never guess what I discovered. I discovered a black widow who prostituted herself. To, you know, that's not what we're, we're going for usually. So it's an interesting occurrence that showing up in the middle of Jesus' genealogy, we have a woman who has prostituted herself. But it considers, so that's Tamar. Keep her in mind. That's woman number one, Tamar in the, in the line of, of Jesus. It goes a little further. Um, and we encounter another woman, Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. I don't know if you remember uh, Rahab. Uh, I, I remember being taught about Rahab going as far back as Sunday school when I was a small child, which is an interesting thing. Like, I understand a lot about Rahab now, and I'm trying to remember how they taught that to us, right? The story of Rahab. Who was Rahab? Uh, she ran a hotel. What kind of hotel? Uh, some of the bad dudes like to go there. Um, I'll give you a, an example of this. When my son wa was younger, we were driving downtown, and there used to be in downtown Grand Rapids, unfortunately, a giant adult club. Uh, and the giant adult club, uh, was, you don't want it, and you really don't want your kids to notice it, but but they decorated it in purple neon lights. It's a giant club. So if you're driving through downtown Grand Rapids, you can't help but notice the giant neon light place. And so my children notice, hey, look, let's go to that place with the giant neon lights. We're like, no, no. And so they're like, why? What, what goes on there? We're, we're, trying to, we're trying to explain. And one of my children explained to my youngest one, it's one of those places where like, I think the women dance around in swimsuits and they have alcohol right which at the time was probably as evil as they could uh as they could imagine right well rahab rahab ran, ran the kind of club where people danced around in swimsuits and drank alcohol um only only a little worse she's a madam right she's running a she's running a um what's a polite way to say whorehouse Good, brothel right doesn't have the same feel, though. Doesn't have the same feel, does it? No, I think you want, I want you to hear, that, that's, you can say brothel, but it doesn't clean up the reality. That's what Rahab's running. So you have Tamar, the, the, the twice married <laughs> black widow, prostituting in trapper. And then you have Rahab, doesn't say that she's a prostitute specifically, but she's running the she's running the hotel, right? She protects. She's we we know her through the story of her doing great things in protecting God's God's um, God's people, right? She protected his his spies who were on the run, and we know her from that. But she ran a brothel. So you've got the prostitute essentially. And then you've got the brothel worker. And then we encounter one we encountered last week. We encounter Ruth. Now, we're not told anything specifically sinful about Ruth. In fact, Scripture paints a pretty positive picture of Ruth, as we recall last week. But it does need to be pointed out that Ruth is not, by birth, Jewish. She's a Moabite. 
right? And Moabites are, are, connect, are, 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 are closely connected or descended from or related to people from Sodom. So she is a woman from, from the family or the family tree or the line of Sodom. What do we know about Sodom? We used it in, uh, we, we uh, intuitively understand Sodom to be a, a synonym for evil, right? We won't go deep into what those synonyms, but even in our own culture, we have sodomy laws, illegal things connected, going all the way back to the behavior of, of, of Sodom. You remember in, in Sodom, as in the book of, of Ruth, that was the place where they came to the doors and demanded that people be brought out so that they might rape them. Very similar to what happened in Ruth. And so we're not told about Ruth's personal behavior in any sort of simple way, but we are told that she's a Moabite. And if she's a Moabite, she's also descended from, from Sodom. She is not by birth. She is not by, um, by blood uh, a, a young Jewish woman. She is a Moabite. And if from an Old Testament perspective, if you're looking at things from that perspective, if you're the nation of Israel, your estimation of a Moabite and your estimation of where she came from, your expectation about that is, is that that is evil. Her background is evil. Where she's from is evil. Her bloodline is corrupted, is what you would have thought, right? They were proverbially those people. They're the Moabites, descended from the people of, of Sodom. So we encounter Tamar. The prostitute. We encounter Rahab, the madam, the prostituter, if you would. We encounter Ruth. We don't know anything specifically, but she's a Moabite from the line of Sodom. And then in verse 6, we see this, and Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, this one doesn't get a name, and I'm not sure what that means, but this is who we know from the story of David as Bathsheba. And you remember Bathsheba as the one with whom the king, David, had an affair. David has an affair with Bathsheba. He, he has an affair with Bathsheba, even though he has everything. He takes the wife of Uriah, as his own, he has an affair with her, she gets pregnant and he tries to hide it, but he can't hide it because Uriah is off fighting a battle, fighting a war for David on behalf of the king. So he calls Uriah home from the battle, hoping that he'll come home, be with his wife, and they can pass out, off this pregnancy, this pregnancy as not David's child, but Uriah's child. But Uriah comes home and he's so loyal to David and he's so loyal to the king that Uriah says, I could not possibly be with my wife when there's a battle going on for our kingdom. I would not dishonor you like that, King David. King David, who's already been with his wife, has already impregnated his wife, takes it a step further and goes, well, if he won't do that, I'll send him into battle. And he sends him into the front line intentionally so that Uriah is murdered. Bathsheba, in that story, what do we know about her? Bathsheba is the one who was, who was with David. This does not seem to be an unwilling dalliance. It doesn't seem as though David is the lone seducer, though completely responsible for his own sinful actions. The reality is, is that Bathsheba 
intentionally probably went up to the roof in the, in the part of the day where she might be seen to sunbathe uh, so that she might attract the attention of the king. And so from that affair, from the child of that, that affair, comes Solomon. And the genealogy goes on. So to review, there's, there's four women in this genealogy. Odd that women appear at all. Particularly odd that these women appear. I'm sure there were other women to talk about, but these women appear. Tamar, the, the black widow prostitute. Rahab, the madam who runs the brothel. Ruth, the Moabite, descended from Sodom. And Bathsheba, the adulteress. Who, who seduced a king and bore him a child. So there's these four women in here, and they fall into the line of, of Jesus. The genealogy, it's up until David, by the way. This is the genealogy down here later. It's going to tell us that this is the genealogy of, um, of Joseph as to, uh, to Jesus' stepfather. And Matthew is trying to establish a, a, a legal argument for why Jesus would be the Messiah. So he gives... Joseph's genealogy, but the interesting thing is, because of the way ancient marriage worked, is that up until David, Mary and Joseph's family line is the same. And so these people are not only legally through Joseph, Jesus' descendants, or he is not just, uh, Jesus is not just legally descended from them, but he's blood descended from these people as to his human side, as to the blood of Mary. Jesus has in him the blood of Tamar. He has in him the blood of Rahab. He has in him the blood of Ruth. And he has in him the blood of Bathsheba. So the question becomes, why in the world is Matthew telling this story? Why would Matthew tell this story? Why is Matthew going out of his way to tell the story of these people behaving in this way? It's very odd that you would even put a woman in, in, in a genealogy at the time. He puts four women in, and these are the four women that he chooses. Why does he do it? Now, we've talked about their, their background, and we could go, well, maybe he put them in there because they're sinners, because of their great sin, and he's trying to emphasize that, which would be a good point, but the reality is the genealogy is full of men who are also sinners. A genealogy has never been made. There's only one person in the whole genealogy that's not a sinner, and it's the last one. See, every man in the genealogy is also a sinner, and they probably sinned in equally spectacular ways, to these people. So it can't be simply that they're sinners. There could be no human genealogy of Jesus that was not full of spectacular sinners. We in our heads would go, well, but I've never done that, or I've never done that, or I didn't do that. And so we could, we could parse, and we could, we, could, uh, we, could, we could reason, and we could think through and go, well, I've never been that. You've never been a lot of things, but every sin you've ever been tempted to commit, you have. You are by nature and by birth sinful, and so the same is true with these people. I mean, these people, these uh, people, if you just take David himself, obviously David is in the genealogy uh, and, and Bathsheba did not impregnate herself. So it cannot be simply that they're sinners. Everybody in the genealogy is a sinner. But they're women and they're here for a reason. So what makes them unique? What makes them different? What makes them unusual? It can't simply be their, their sinfulness. Others have said, well, they're very resourceful. They, they did 
great things. They took initiative. And it's true in the stories. They are resourceful and they take initiative. But so do the other people in the gene. You could go through the genealogy. It just doesn't, doesn't compute. There's other women. And if you're crafting a genealogy, by the way, and you're crafting it in the style in which they crafted these genealogies, these women are here for a specific reason. What could it be? Let's just pause for a second and talk about the context of, of Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' followers, right? One of his, one of his 12. When he become, after Jesus ascends, Matthew continues to do ministry. Where does Matthew continue to do ministry? Uh, tradition tells us that it's very likely that Matthew becomes a missionary in Syria. He's a missionary in Syria amongst then a non-Jewish people. And so he's writing a genealogy for them, or he has in mind some of them. What does he tell them through this? Here, guys, is what these four women have in common. Besides being, being sinful, besides being resourceful, here's what they have in common. Every one of them is a foreigner. As to their Jewish background, as to the Jewish understanding of who Jesus is, as to the Messianic expectation, not a one of them is Jewish by birth. Why does that tell us something? Why is that important? Here's why I would suggest it was important to Matthew. Matthew, if he is a missionary in Syria, wants to make this point that there is a Messiah. But the Messiah has been connected because the Messiah comes from a culture. What is the culture of the Messiah? The culture of the Messiah is that he is a deeply Jewish king, right? He comes out of he is a descendant of Abraham. He is a descendant of David. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the one to come to sit and fulfill uh, uh, the, 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 the greatness and the fullness of, of sitting upon the throne of David, so to speak, in the, in the future. He's the, 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 the son of, of David. He is the, the, the Messiah who has come. They have this expectation. Every page of Scripture dips or, or, or drips with this expectation that, that there is coming one who will fulfill the very words of Scripture. And when I say Scripture, I'm talking about everything before Matthew. Matthew's not yet been written, has not yet been canonized. It is not yet in that sense Scripture. Every bit of Scripture before Matthew talks about this coming king, this coming Messiah, this coming ruler. Isaiah, when it talks of himself in the Prince of Peace, uh, it, it talks of, uh, about the one where the government would be upon his shoulders, but he would bring, bring peace to the nations. And in Isaiah, it talks about the one who, who would bring healing to the, to the nations. All over Scripture, it, it talks about him. Even in Ruth, which we talked about last week, uh, there, there's, the, there, there's these echoes, these whispers of the reality that when David comes, we understand, looking back, that from the line of David comes a Jewish king, a Jewish Messiah. Jesus had a culture. He came from a place. He was a Jewish king. And so we don't always get that contextually. We like to contextualize Jesus into our culture. I was having a conversation with someone uh, last night just on online, just a, a quick Twitter conversation. We were talking about how, you know, uh, there's a tendency in uh, American evangelicalism and especially in American art to make Jesus a, a white dude with flowing locks, right? Um, 
And I think, I think if you look at the history of that, that the picture that we, we think sort of as Jesus is the painting of a, of a prince. Uh, and, and the person who commissioned that painting wanted a picture of Jesus, and he commissioned it to paint it so Jesus looked like his son. That's why we get... But even so, you have a tendency to read and understand Jesus in your own culture. And so we have a tendency to, to think of Jesus as one who looks like us, Jesus is one who acted like us. Jesus who did the things that we do. We think of him, for better or worse, like an American Jesus. And so we were talking about this because uh, he was talking about, you know, how, how we do that. Um, and, and it reminded me of, of a story that I was relating to him of the editors of the African American Heritage Bible. And people were throwing a fit. I like, this is the great time of year. This is where people uh, throw fits over over characters that they like being black. I don't know if you saw it this week. Again, this week someone had a fit because there was a black Santa at the, at the mall, and Santa's not black. I'm like, nor is he real. Um, so, I mean, right? We did, we also had the black Annie freak out, remember? Annie's not black. No, Annie's not real, right? So, it's tis, tis the season. So, uh, there was a, uh, there. There, the, in the African-American Heritage Bible, they painted Jesus in there, and they depicted Jesus as black. And then other people came along and were like, you can't make Jesus black. Jesus isn't black. And they were attacking. And so the editor of the African-American Heritage Bible said one of the funnier things I've heard. He said this. He said, we know Jesus wasn't black, but we'll lighten ours when they darken theirs. Which I think is an excellent point. And here's a reality. We interpret Jesus through a culture. And typically it's ours. Jesus came from a culture, and we need to try and encounter him in his and see how that applies to ours. But the job of a missionary, right, the job of what, what we do uh, uh, is to take Jesus from his own culture and to, to show them how Jesus from his own culture relates to the culture in which he is being communicated. So Matthew is a missionary to Syria. Why is he mentioning these four Gentile women? Because he wants them to know, though Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, even though Jesus is the Messiah from Jewish background, I, I should say, even though Jesus is the King of Kings, even though Jesus is the Lord of Lords, even though Matthew is going to write and tell the story of how Jesus was died uh, and was resurrected, even though he's going to tell that whole story from his Jewish background, he wants them to know that this story applies to them. And the way he does that is to point out that Jesus, though he did have the blood of Israel running through his blood, he also had the blood of the rest of the world. This is a missionary passage. And Matthew is acting like a missionary. And the point he wants them to understand is this. Yes, Jesus came from a Jewish background. Yes, Jesus lived a very Jewish life. Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Jewish religion. Yes, every page of the Hebrew scriptures refers to Jesus. Yes, 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 yes. But because Jesus was Jewish does not mean that he is not also the Savior for the Gentiles. Right? Jesus is descended from Abraham. But Abraham was promised that he would be the father of many nations. And you're seeing here is Matthew is taking what was said to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, look, your offspring will be as many as the stars. Matthew is saying, 
yes, that is true. And we know that that is going to be true going forward. As he went to Syria, he said, but I want you to show, to show you how Jesus was planning for it throughout all of history, how God was making it so. So Jesus has the blood of the nations running through his veins. So that when Jesus is born in a manger in Bethlehem, and they come to celebrate him, kings from the east, or astrologers from the east come. They're not Jewish. Are they free to come? Yes. Why? Because Jesus also has their blood in his veins. He's got the blood of the nations coming through him. So that as, as the story progresses, that Jesus develops into a young man who walks on the earth and he loves on, on, on people and he cares for them. When the Samaritan woman comes, and he doesn't condemn her, but he loves her. Is she free to come? Yeah, she's free to come. Is she fully Jewish? No, she's a half-breed. She's an outcast. She's mixed race. But you know who cares and can love a mixed race woman? A mixed race savior. And that's the blood of Jesus. Right? Jesus is not... Sometimes we, we put Jesus into our own culture and our own definition and our own thing. But it's the blood of the nations. So when the Samaritan, she can come. Yeah, come. Mixed race woman. Come to the feet of the mixed race Savior. When Jesus lives a sinless life and is put on a cross and they nail him there and they put the nails into his hands and his blood runs to the foot of the cross. The blood that runs is the blood of the nations coursing through his veins. Jesus, with the blood of the nations in his veins, went to a cross to die so that the nations might be saved by that same blood. This is a missionary passage. This is the week of uh, a joy in the preparation. And, and um, so, so we're progressing toward it. What is our joy? Our joy is this, is that most of us here, a few of you here, uh, have, have ethnic Jewish blood in you. And that's a beautiful thing. You share the blood of the Savior. But most of us have none. And this passage wants to make the point, you share the blood of the Savior too. And the, and the point becomes this, come. You can come to this Savior. It's putting Jesus into into that context. And so, what is our joy? Our joy, the reason we come, the reason we got up, the reason we showed up on a morning where it's extremely snowy out there, uh, uh, the reason we drove over when I'm sure the roads were slippery, the reason we drove over when it's cold, the reason we, we drove over uh, uh, when it would have been easier to sit in the light of our Christmas tree and drink hot cocoa or sleep. The reason we drove over is this, is that we believe Jesus to be a historical, factual reality. Like, we believe that Jesus actually exists. And I am here saying what I say because I believe that Jesus has saved me. I believe that I was born in sin. I believe I was an enemy of, of Christ. And I believe that Jesus, in his goodness, rescued and saved me. I have no joy but that. I have nothing to, 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 to revel in but that because if I don't have that, I have nothing. 
If I do have that and I have nothing else, I have all I need. Jesus is my joy. I've been saved by him. I've been rescued by him. I've been loved by him. He makes my life make sense. He makes me able to get up and out of bed in the morning. And the mornings when I get confused, and the mornings where I feel depressed, and the mornings where I place my focus on some sort of human thing, the only thing that motivates me to get up is this reality, is that the only thing that matters, the thing that matters most is Jesus. And him crucified and having rescued me and loving me and, 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 and forming me and making me more like him and making it so that I can, I can be more like him so that I can live in joy so that my existence can be for the very glory of this Jesus. I get to live for him because he has died and resurrected for me. He has taken away my sins. He's made me new. He's made me his child. It says in Romans, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's making me like him. This is my joy. That brings me joy. And I don't know if that brings you joy. But if you know him, it should. The only thing I found that does not fail me is this. Is that Christ was crucified and rose again to rescue me from sin, death, hell, oppression, uh, ostracization, uh, separation, all of those sorts of things. Jesus has rescued me and made me a child of the living God. We come during this season to celebrate the fact that Jesus has come to bring joy. We sing songs about joy. We, 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 we sing, uh, we do cheerful things. Christmas is supposed to be uh, this sort of celebration in, in our culture, but it's interesting that a lot of people are celebrating that, and they're trying to celebrate it as a cultural thing, but it is not simply cultural. I celebrate Advent. Why do I celebrate Advent? Because someone put a holiday? No. I celebrate Advent because I've really been rescued by Jesus. I've really been saved by Jesus. My sins have really been covered by Jesus. I'm free to become more like him because of Jesus. I have a friendship with God because of Jesus. I'm a child of the living God, and I can call him Abba, Father, because of Jesus. That is joy. And yet this Advent passage written by Matthew that we've chosen this morning suggests to me that this is not a joy that we should hoard this is not a joy that we should hold back. This is not a joy that we should keep for ourselves. Matthew has written this and tells us the story of the blood of the world in, in, the, in the body of the Savior for a very simple reason. The blood of the world is in the Savior because the Savior wants to save the world. You know this. This is Crosswinds. We say Revelation 5, 7 all the time. For they sang a new song and the multitude was behind them. Who were they? People from every tribe, language, nation, race. The picture of heaven, or the picture of the new earth, is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, where he told them, look up, see the stars of the sky, your offspring will be as many as those. Matthew chapter 1 is just a confirmation of that. These women, the blood of the nations, these foreigners, these foreigners in the, in the, in the genealogy of, of Jesus, are just a confirmation that what he said in the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. In Revelation, all the nations of the world worshiping him together is a picture of the fulfillment. But that is our joy. It's a missionary passage. And so what I want to challenge you with is this. Who do you know that needs the joy of Jesus? 
Who do you know that, that is living this holiday season? For a person, uh, for some people, this holiday season is, is, is amazingly joyful naturally. For other people, it's amazingly depressing because they feel disconnected or they feel hurt, they feel pain. This can be a hurtful season for some. You know people out there experiencing all kinds of things. You know people out there with all kinds of pain, and yet their biggest pain of any man or woman is this. If they do not know Jesus, they will spend eternity apart from God. If they do not know Jesus, they cannot be friends with God. If they do not know Jesus, they have no legal adoption into the family of God. We who know the joy of Jesus should never hold back. Who do you know this season? Who do you know in your family? Who do you know in your friends? Who do you know at your workplace? Who do you know where you just need to be honest and go, listen, in this season, I need to tell you about the joy that I know. I have a Savior. His name is Jesus. He was the Savior of the world. We know he was the Savior of the world because of this. Though he's predominantly Jewish, as to his bloodline, there are people from other nations and other places. And we know that the teaching of Scripture says Jesus wants to save all mankind. People from Mexico and Guatemala, people from Syria and, and all over the Middle East, people from Australia and the Philippines and in and, and, and Canada and Russia and every other place you see on the news and every other place that you're hearing about. Jesus wants to save them. We know it's true. Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant tells us it's true. Revelation at the end of the scriptures tells us it's true. But Matthew chapter 1 also tells us it's true. Who do you know that needs to hear about the Savior with the blood of the nations running through his veins who shed that blood on a cross to rescue them? Is your mom, your dad, your grandparents? Is it the person who works at the cubicle next to you? The person you sit in the break room with? So the person you go to school with, right? Young people, you are not immune. Your Christian faith does not start at the moment you graduate from, from high school. It doesn't start at the moment you graduate from college. It doesn't start when you get married and start to have children. If you are a follower of Jesus, then his blood has been applied to your life. He has rescued you and you should be conformed to his image now. What are you doing with your school days? Do you know, young people, that more people come to faith in, in their young ages overwhelmingly than they do in their old ages. Jesus has strategically sent you, especially if you're a, your kids who are out there in our, our, our public schools and, and you're out there with all kinds of people who know Jesus. Are you using that time for his glory and his will? He has placed you there. If you have his joy in you, are you sharing that joy with others? Are you saying to your friends that they need the Savior that you know? And if you're saying it with your mouth, are you living it with your life? Young people, but not just young people. Adults. Christianity is not a Sunday morning event. We do get together on Sunday mornings here, but it's not a Sunday morning event. It is the full encapsulation of who you are and what you are called to be. Are you living it at your job? Are you speaking it at your job? Are you telling them that your friends, your co-workers, all those people, they need to know Jesus? And are you living it? What's your testimony? We have relationships. We emphasize this. This is a neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor congregation, right? Neighbors reach neighbors. That's history. It's also the future. We say that a lot. But are you living it? 
with your neighbors? Are you saying it with your mouth? Are you inviting people to church and then living like you don't know Jesus? Don't do that. The joy of Jesus is yours. Don't hold it back from the people in your life who need to know this Jesus. Who do you know that needs to hear that there's a Savior about to be born in Bethlehem? Who will be the hope of all men? Pray with me.